This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. If you've listened to our podcast before, you'll no doubt notice some differences in today's episode. That's because today, we're debuting a brand new version of the podcast. From now on, we'll be bringing you that same in-depth content you're used to, but in a brand new package. We'll begin each episode with the latest healthcare business news, then deliver provider stories and practical advice for healthcare finance leaders like you. We'll release new episodes every other Wednesday with occasional bonus episodes that go in-depth about a particular topic. On today's episode, we begin a series that focuses on best practices in the revenue cycle. Then, we'll discuss key opportunities to educate patients about their financial obligations. But first, here's Rich Daly with the news. With your healthcare finance news update, this is Rich Daly, senior writer for HFMA. Medicare's main group of accountable care organizations delivered big 2017 savings, but questions remain about what effect that will have on the program's fate. The 472 Medicare Shared Savings Program ACOs generated $314 million in net savings to Medicare in 2017, after accounting for bonuses paid to ACOs. That's according to an analysis of performance data quietly released recently by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Cliff Gauss, president and CEO of the National Association of ACOs, or NACOs, said, quote, These recent results show that ACOs have turned the corner, and this evidence dispels confusion about ACO performance. The MSSP ACOs generated gross savings of $1.1 billion. That was out of $95 billion in Medicare spending. Under the CMS methodology for setting financial benchmarks, the results were a marked improvement from 2016 when MSSP ACOs provided $652 million in gross savings, but a net Medicare loss of $39 million after accounting for bonuses that were paid. David Molstein, Chief Research Officer for Leave It Partners, said in an interview, quote, I think that the net savings this year, as opposed to a slight loss last year, is a function of more organizations moving to risk. So a few more poor-performing ACOs had to pay back a penalty payment. More organizations that have more experience and are actually figuring out how to manage new populations, and some poor performers leaving the program. In 2017, 60% of ACOs saved money and 34% earned shared savings. That was an increase from 56% saving money and 31% earning shared savings in 2016, NACOs found. The share of ACOs earning shared savings jumped to 51% among those that entered the program in 2012, said Claire Pierce Robel, Senior Director for the Healthcare Transformation Task Force. In comparison, only 20% of the newest ACOs received bonus payments, Molstein said. Other findings of various analyses of this new data included the finding of $780 million in shared saving bonuses paid in total to ACOs. 
Track 2 and Track 3 ACOs generated $190 million in savings and received $95 million in bonuses. Track 1 ACOs generated $1.5 billion in savings and received $685 million in bonus payments. An analysis by Levy Partners found ACOs that were in two-sided risk were just as likely as those in one-sided risk to achieve savings for CMS. However, two-sided ACOs were much more likely to achieve bonus payments. The data, released long before the usual October data release, comes as CMS considers an overhaul of the MSSP program. Pierce Robel said, quote, what was surprising was the timing of this data release, considering the open comment period in CMS's proposed rule to overhaul the program. Now that these data are out and public, they seem like a boon to those in favor of maintaining an upside-only track. The latest data followed comments to reporters in late August by the recently appointed director of CMMI, Adam Bowler. He caught industry attention when he said he, quote, could be okay, close quote, with large ACO departures. Bowler said, our job isn't to have a lot of ACOs. Our job is to improve performance, to drive costs down, and improve quality. And so there are some people that should be in an ACO and some that shouldn't. Increasing the number of Medicare ACOs was long a leading priority of the Obama administration. In response to Bowler's comments, Allison Brennan, Vice President of Policy at NACOS, said, quote, given the success of ACOs and the understanding that generating savings and achieving high quality takes time, it is imperative to keep the current ACOs in the program so that they can continue to improve and evolve. In addition, Brennan underscored the need for a, quote, healthy pipeline of new ACOs to move more providers toward value-based payment. She said, quote, that is a long-standing bipartisan goal of the administration and Congress, as well as a goal of ACOs and many in the broader healthcare industry. For more healthcare business news, visit hfma.org news. Now, we move into the first piece of our six-part series on the revenue cycle. Everybody ready? Ready! Then let's... Yeah! That's me on a recent outing with my daughters. They're two and four, and I'm currently expecting my third. During the evenings and weekends, my time is filled with picture books, playgrounds, and Peppa Pig. But I'm a working mom, too. In fact, I'm an editor at HFMA. Having been through pregnancy and childbirth two other times in the last few years, I know a lot of what to expect. I know my physician will recommend early genetic testing because of my age. I know I'll need to go in for an ultrasound around 20 weeks and for that awful glucose test around 24 weeks. But some things are different. My health plan has changed a little, meaning my out-of-pocket costs could change. And because there's a new administration in the White House since my two-year-old was born, there's always a chance for policy changes that could affect maternity care. But for me, the most significant change since my last pregnancy is that I've learned a lot about healthcare finance. And although I'm not yet an expert, I know enough to approach my own healthcare and that of my family in a different way. As an editor for various HFMA publications, I read a lot about best practices when it comes to revenue cycle management and patient communication. I notice which of my family's providers make it easy for me to know what my financial responsibility is and to fulfill that responsibility. So I had the idea to follow a real patient, me, through the revenue cycle and document the journey for a podcast series. Over the next several weeks, 
I'll be talking with experts about best practices at each step in the revenue cycle and why it's important to keep the patient in mind. I should pause here to say this. This series, although it centers around my real pregnancy, is not about my personal financial situation. We won't be combing through my medical bills or talking about my specific health plan. The goal here is to put a human face, or voice as it were, on the revenue cycle. I sat down recently with Sandra Wolfskill, one of HFMA's directors of healthcare finance policy, to talk about the importance of keeping the patient in mind when determining and executing revenue cycle policies. She had some great insights, but one message that stood out to me was this. We are all patients. Simply put, if you think about it, the American healthcare system without the patient doesn't exist. The patient is the driver behind all of what happens in a healthcare setting. So if the patient isn't kept in the forefront, then we run a very high risk of the patient looking for a different provider who will actually pay attention and will actually have answers to the kinds of questions the consumers ask. But they weren't comfortable doing it. And so over time, they just stopped asking and they just stopped talking to the patient. If you're going to start providing a financial care plan to your patient, you need to spend the time and the effort to train your staff. You need to make sure that they understand what they're supposed to be saying and how they're supposed to be saying it. You need to give them scripting that they can adapt to what they're comfortable with. The importance of scripting is to make sure that the right issues and the right points are included in the conversation. And you want to give staff a safe environment in which to practice before you flip the switch and start talking to all your patients about financial matters. And that means role play. It means classroom. It means taking the time and investing the, the effort and the resources to do it right. If you do, staff will soon discover that patients more likely than not will say thank you. I appreciate that information. I never understood how this works because the reality is that insurance companies and employers do not necessarily do a great job of explaining how healthcare insurance benefits really work. But it's our industry, our contracts with those payers, it's our money that's at stake. So as a provider, whether it's a physician's office or a hospital, we need to equip our staff to be able to take the time and provide the explanation to the patient and the patient's family so that they understand why they owe $500, why they owe $750, or why they owe whatever the amount is estimated to be. That's how you improve collections. We got to talking about our own patient experiences, and I shared this story about something that happened in my family. After our first visit to a new pediatrician's office, we received a bill for the full amount of the visit. It wasn't much, but I noticed that our account was marked self-pay. It was obvious to me then that our insurance information simply hadn't made it into the system, so I called and the problem was fixed quickly. But a few years ago, before I worked in this industry, I would have assumed self-pay meant the amount I was supposed to contribute after insurance. And because the bill wasn't all that high, I wouldn't have questioned it. This experience drove home the idea that healthcare organizations should be educating patients about their financial responsibilities. 
Keeping up with trends in consumerism and disruptive innovation is critical to improving health outcomes and your organization's financial performance. The good news is you don't have to face these challenges alone. At this year's Revenue Cycle Conference, you'll collaborate on key takeaways and come away with strategies and tactics to make your organization's revenue cycle more accurate, efficient, and patient-focused. Register now at hfma.org rcc and join us in Denver October 21st through the 23rd. And now it's time for Fast Five, five fast facts about a hot topic in healthcare. Today, prioritizing the patient financial conversation, five ways healthcare organizations can communicate more effectively with patients about their financial obligations. Before the conversation with the patient even begins, the organization should verify his or her insurance coverage. Once that step is complete, the organization can generate an estimate of what the patient will owe. A financial counselor should then sit down with the patient and discuss the cost estimate and options for payment. By sharing these estimates proactively, a healthcare organization can better ensure the patient will be willing and able to meet their financial commitments. Next, clinical and financial staff should work together to obtain pre-authorization for any procedures that require it. Failure to complete this step could result in a health plan denying a procedure, which could put patient payment at risk. Patients should be given a few options for payment. Many patients like to make payments using their credit or debit cards, and some would even agree to having their information stored for automatic payments. With patients taking on a greater responsibility for the cost of their health care, the amount owed can easily surpass their ability to pay. Financial counselors should be prepared for these conversations and offer payment plan options. These tips come from Matthew Hawkins at Waystar. You can read more of his thoughts about patient financial communication in a blog post at hfma.org slash hfmblog. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by Erica Grotto. The news segment is written and recorded by Rich Daly. Sound editing is by Brian Kuhn. Special thanks to Julian Suga for his help in creating Voices in Healthcare Finance in its new format. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to tell a friend or colleague if you like what you're hearing. If you're a healthcare provider with a story to share, or if you'd just like to get in touch with our team, you can email us at podcast at hfma.org. We'd love to hear from you.